Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Lux mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. To me, the most fun part of something and saying, how can I get comfortable and I can look natural doing this, you know, whether it's bowling or, you know, or dancing, you know, and something. And, but learning things is, 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 you know, you're like a perpetual student. And uh, sometimes you just want to become a master at something and you have to really admit to yourself that you're not. <laughs> that you're really not. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we'll be joined by the Batman and the true adventures of Wolfboy star John Turturro, who takes a look back at his random roles, including Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, The Night Of?, and even voicing a dog in Spike Lee's Summer of Sam. But first, we have our film editor, A.A. Dowd, and senior writer Katie Reif here to talk about the Gotham Award nominations. Thanks for joining, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Hey. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Katie and Dowd's voices may sound familiar to those of you who are subscribers of our Film Club podcast. And if you're not, you should be. But I asked them to pull double duty this week and join us on Push the Envelope to discuss the 30th annual Gotham Awards, also known as the Gotham Independent Film Awards. So obviously there's the Academy Awards that honor indies alongside big studio films. And then there's things like the Indie Spirit Awards that honor just independent films. And here we have the Gotham Awards, which maybe aren't as well-known beyond the film community um, as some of those others. So why don't we kick off, guys, with kind of explaining to to our listeners who maybe not, aren't familiar with them, like, what makes them unique? Obviously, they're one of the first to come out in the big award season. So, you know, we, we get an inkling of what some people are thinking, but it's not really a true barometer of a lot of the other award shows, correct? Right. Well, the thing about the Gothams is that they usually are the first. I'm not sure how long exactly that's been true, but at least for the last few years, the Gothams have been the first uh, first award show out the gate, basically, or the, the, the first uh, awards group to announce their nominations. So there's this kind of sense that they sort of are setting the tone of the season. But the truth is that, I mean, there are a couple of reasons why I don't think they really have that huge of an influence on on, say, where award season goes. And one of them is that the Gothams restrict their picks to independent films. So anything that's, um, I should say also American independent films. So anything that's, the budget cap on them is $35 million. So uh, the, the film has to be made for less money than that to be considered. So this year, obviously, that means that there was a number of films that weren't eligible to be nominated for a Gotham, including Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, including Mank. There's just a few that don't, that don't reach that that were made for more than 35 million. The other thing is that the Gotham's the Gotham's are voted on largely by film critics. So every year that basically by invitation film critics are asked to serve on nominating committees and they pick the films. So what you're seeing is these awards end up sort of reflecting the taste of of film critics as much as the taste of people in Hollywood, which is uh, there's a real distinction there, I think, between what we might pick as critics and what Hollywood might pick for something like the Academy Awards. Well, and speaking of the decisions that are made and the committees, you've actually served on the committee for the Gotham Awards. Isn't that right, Dowd? Yeah, I have. I, I did it a couple of years, a few years back now at this point. And um, I think it is uh, that process, I have to imagine, is different than something like the Academy Awards as well, where you have thousands of people voting sending in ballots and then they're just sort of being tabulated. Whereas with something like the Gotham Awards, we all get on the phone, we have our own picks and we have a discussion about it. And uh, mm. I think what happens is that they're at, you're actually kind of forming a particular lineup by committee sort of there's, you know, there's like five of us usually, and you're all kind of making decisions about what you want this lineup to be. And then it turns, there's a little bit of horse trading sometimes like, well, we should get this person 
And if we get this person, maybe we can lose that person, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's a much, that's a much, much different process than, than say a thousand and thousands of people all voting and uh, just tabulating that with math, you know? Maybe a little politicking, huh? <laughs> Oh, for sure. For sure. I remember there was a year in which uh, I don't know how much I'm supposed to be talking about the inner workings of this, but I was really pushing. <laughs> I was really pushing Adam Sandler for the Meyerowitz stories. I was like, nice. we have to get him in there. <laughs> yeah, I actually um, uh, have served on committees for the Critics' Choice Awards and then get to vote as part of the Television Critics Association as well. And it's interesting how those dynamics work and you're like, well, we're hitting this kind of here and that's getting representation there. So we really should try and there, there is that kind of negotiation that happens when you're doing stuff by committee versus just a wide vote, which is more what the Television Critics Association is. Um, and Katie, I know you've served on some festival committees and such uh, as well. Yeah, I've done a couple of film festival juries, and it, it sounds uh, pretty similar to what Dowd is describing at the Gotham Awards, only with a narrower pool of selections to choose from, I guess, because, you know, when it's a festival, you just have the, the one slate that you're looking at instead of the year in film in general. Yeah, well, and I think it's really interesting, Dad, that you mentioned that you all would do it over phone and that's kind of stuff, because I think a lot of a lot of these things have happened in person, particularly for the festivals. But it's nice to know that the Gotham Awards were ahead of the curve and making sure that things could be done remotely, since um, yeah. <laughs> since that's uh, how everything has to be done these days. It is interesting to note, as you mentioned, it's it's usually the first, if not at least one of the first. And, you know, traditionally the award show is in November, but this was pushed back to January. But then all the other award shows were pushed back from January and February into late February, March, April. So they still get to be uh, among the first. And uh, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on some of the choices that were made here. Let's start off with the, with the big, with the big award, which is best feature. So there we had the assistant, first cow, never rarely, sometimes always, nomad land and relic. And I know some of these have popped up on on some of your best lists, and and we've obviously reviewed them for the site. Uh, what what are your general thoughts on these five nominations? Let's start with you, Katie. Well, my initial thought is that I believe, yeah, all five of these films have female directors, which is uh, you know unfortunately pretty uncommon. And when you're looking at a slate of best picture nominees in any sort of award ceremony, and I think that kind of reflects something that has been happening this year is that, you know, because of the greater emphasis on indie films, you know, uh, women get fewer opportunities to direct, you know, the bigger budget studio films. And so they, they can get drowned out when there's a lot of big budget productions to compete with. And I think this, um, this particular phenomenon kind of reflects that the quieter films, uh, which are tend to be more often have female directors uh, are getting more attention my other thought is that I'm kind of surprised that Relic is on here. Uh, it's a horror film, first of all. And second, uh, that's an interesting one. We talked about this a little bit on our elevated horror uh, episode of Film Club, which is that this was one that got good reviews, but didn't really sustain a lot of buzz for a long time afterwards its release. At least um, that was my impression. Yeah, if I can... It if I can be honest, um, I mean, I, th I think this is a really strong lineup of films. And I will say that I think that f I, I have a suspicion about this particular lineup, which is that I think four of these films were, I'm imagining, were very much in this discussion and we're doing very well in this mm -hmm. discussion. And then I think at some point, it's possible that the nominating committee making this lineup realized that they were very close to having to having five films directed by women. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to denigrate Relic, which I think is a pretty good film, but a part of me thinks that maybe it was a decision was made, like we're very close to having five films by women right. nominated for best feature. Why not make it five, you know, yeah. and just go well, the full five right. and give, give that extra push to Relic, you know? Yeah, because like I, I liked Relic and I gave it a pretty good review on the website, but as more horror films have come out this year, it didn't make my top five horror films of the year. So, um, you know, it's interesting. It had strong performances, though. I don't know if this is the type of some awards bodies are bigger on different types of things. I don't know if performances are a big thing for Gotham's voters generally doubt. Well, uh, I mean, obviously, there are different committees voting for these things. So there are right, different sure. committees talking about actor and actress. I think honestly with with the people who are selected to make these decisions I think it's it's often film critics who are trying mm. to look at the full scope of it um sure. 
I don't want, again, I don't want to like, I'm not denigrating Relic, which I think is a pretty good film. (laughs) I I do think, however, that it being one of the five best, even independent films of the year might be a bit of a stretch. Whereas I think the other four in contention here are all like very much what I, I might expect to see in this conversation as determined by film critics. Yeah, absolutely. First Cow in Nomadland, no surprise at all. The Assistant, never really, sometimes, always. Also, you know, like those are slightly less expected, but still, you know, solid picks and then it, it's like four rock solid picks and then one yeah okay sure <laughs> <laughs> exactly which to be fair is 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 common in in awards you know even at the oscars you're like well there's these front runners and then there's these other people that had to fill out the category so (laughs) we'll see we'll see how that rolls up well you mentioned uh dowd best actor best actress so let's look at those categories starting with actor um we have riz ahmed for the sound of metal Mm -hmm. chadwick boseman for ma rainey's black bottom jude law for the nest john magaro for first cow Jesse Plemons for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Dowd, let's kick things off with you in this category. I actually haven't seen a couple of these yet, Patrick. Um, I have not seen Sound of Metal yet, and I've not seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. We'll have reviews of both of those on the site this week. So if you're if you're listening to this, our review of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom will drop tomorrow, Friday, on the site. And Sound of Metal should already be already be there. I can't speak to those performances, but I will say that I think the other three are quite strong. I am especially fond of Jude Law's performance in in The Nest. Over the years, Jude Law, as he's gotten older, I think Jude Law has sort of perfected these men who are um, these characters who are very well put together in appearance, but are kind of having a desperate meltdown on the inside. I think there's actually a lot of um, there are a lot of parallels between what he's doing in The Nest and one of his funniest performances, which is in I Heart Huckabee's. So I think he's really good in this. I think the other two are both really good as well. Uh, what do you think, Katie? Yeah, uh, for me, the two standouts on this list, because, yeah, I, I, I'm i actually reviewing Sound of Metal, but uh, I need to watch that. I've heard very strong things about that, and I've heard some very strong buzz on Chadwick Boseman's performance. I believe that is his final performance in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which will add another yeah. layer of poignancy to this to the whole thing. Yeah, of the ones that I have seen here, Jude Law and John Magaro are the ones that stand out to me. And to me, they represent two sides of the, um, I suppose the male performance coin or even just the, <laughs> the, the, the social constructions of masculinity coin where, you know, Jude Law plays a very, in the nest, uh, like like you were describing, a character who's barely holding it together on the outside. He's a mess on the inside. But John Magaro is a very, steady, calm, placid kind of presence in First Cow. <laughs> uh, well, let's move on to uh, Best Actress, um, which has some titles that I'm super excited are, are getting recognized. Uh, we have Nicole Bahari for mm-hmm. Miss Juneteenth, Jesse Buckley for I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Carrie Coon for The Nest, Francis McDormand for Nomadland, and Yoo Jung-yoon for Minari. Mm-hmm. Katie, let's kick you off here. Uh, yeah, this is a very strong category, I think. All of the ones that I've seen here are very strong work. Uh, Nicole Bahari, uh, Miss Juneteenth. This is a film that I am, you know, uh, pleased to see get this much representation here in the Gotham Awards nominations. I believe the, yeah, the director was also nominated for the Breakthrough Director Award. And this is another film that I think had this been a typical year and, you know, we were, um, a lot of the big studio films were coming out. I'm not sure that this film, I think it might have gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit, but it, it, it's been given a chance to shine more with, I suppose, the smaller scope of the films uh, released this year. And I thought Nicole Bahari was fantastic in this. And Frances McDormand in Nomadland, I think that's going to be one of my favorite films of the year. That I thought that film was strong work all around. Yeah, well, and Mr. Teeth, I know we included that on our best movies of the year so far at the mm-hmm. midway point. Um, and that made me check it out and, and agree. Like, it's just so fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad that it's getting the attention it is. Dowd, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think this is a strong lineup. Um, I, probably my favorite of the bunch is Jesse Buckley in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, mm-hmm. um, which I think at this point is probably my favorite movie of the year. I thankfully don't have to make that decision yet, um, but <laughs> but uh, as of now, I'm leaning towards it, and I think that a, a lot of the reason that it works, and it's not just this 
total stream of consciousness mess. I think that Buckley has a lot to do with that and the way that she yeah. grounds this thing. Even I mean, the game is playing the, the movie is playing all these games with identity, and even even our notion of who this character is that she's playing keeps shifting. Her name keeps changing. The details of her biography keep changing. But Buckley keeps us invested in her, even as uh, we begin to wonder, is she more of an idea than a person? And I just think it's a really it's a it's a tightrope act of a performance. And I'm, I'm glad to see her in here. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, everything you said about that performance doubt and of the two, you know, Jesse Plemons also nominated for I'm thinking of ending things like, please, Jesse Plemons, if you hear this, I mean, this is a compliment. The character's supposed to be kind of a lump of a man, and he does that very well. <laughs> However, he is a bit of a lump of a man, whereas Jesse Buckley's character is a little more dynamic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely a lump by design, you know. Yes, uh, he's supposed to he, be a lump, yes. <laughs> he's, I think in general, he's pretty good at playing lumps. Um, it's, it's kind of a specialty, actually. <laughs> yeah, he, he was a very good lump on on the second season of Fargo as well. I thought that Indeed. was a a, qual, a quality lump performance as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they you know maybe that should be a new category. But speaking of categories, what you mentioned the Breakthrough Director Award, which mm-hmm. is the official title is the Bingham Ray Breakthrough Director Award, which is named after an independent film executive. And we see a, a bunch of names recognized there. And I think that's that's a really, they have Breakthrough Actor and Breakthrough Director Award, which I think are, are really great, it's particularly in independent film, to be honoring people that really are emerging talents because mm-hmm. it, it is a space, it is a space that allows for that much more than, than the studio system. Oh, yeah, 100%. A lot of the films we look at here on the Breakthrough Director Award, as far as the 40-year-old version came out on Netflix, so it had that backing. But the rest of these films were fully independent productions, as far as I know, and uh, did come out on the festival circuit initially, like uh, The Vast of Night, which is on here. That I did an interview with that director around uh, that film. It was on the festival circuit last year. And that was just uh, that was just a crew of a, basically a bunch of. I don't want to say nobodies, but people who didn't have any industry connections made that film. (laughs) (laughs) And um, St. Francis was a Chicago-based production. Uh, Swallow came out on IFC. Miss Juneteenth, like I said, was a pretty low-key South by Southwest title that broke out. So, yeah, there is a lot of exciting talent on the breakthrough director slate. Yeah, and uh, Dowd, I know we were discussing before we began recording this episode how interesting it was to see Bad Education nominated for Best Screenplay. This is, of course, the HBO movie starring Hugh Jackman. Um, Mike Mikowski is up for Best Screenplay here. And that's also something that I think you maybe wouldn't have seen, or no, you definitely wouldn't have seen in other non-pandemic days. Yeah, I mean, the lines that are separating, like, what is a movie and what is a TV movie, I think, have been blurring for many years now. And Mm -hmm. I think the pandemic has blurred them even more. The Academy announced this year, for example, that something can premiere on streaming platforms or on VOD or digitally and still be eligible. That's a first for the Academy. They always insisted that it go to theaters before hitting those platforms. But because of the unique circumstances of this year and COVID, they're, they're kind of bending their own rules. I still think the bad education probably would not qualify by the Academy's rules because I think they still have a rule about something. It can't premiere on television first. And bad education did go immediately to HBO. It premiered on the channel proper. But I think that, I mean, the thing about bad education is that it it was not made by HBO. It was, it basically premiered at, um, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival last year. And I think that in, I, I think it's a movie that very easily could have been in theaters and very easily could have been picked up by a different distributor. HBO ended up picking it up. I I get its inclusion here. I think it's very much a movie. It's very cinematic. (laughs) Um, But it is the type of thing that I'm not sure we would normally see in here because, uh, again, this is an HBO movie. It was just up for for Emmys, basically. The HBO thing in particular really is an interesting case study in the kind of hairs that gets split, you know, in determining whether something is film or TV anymore. Like if something premiered on HBO, then that's TV. But if it premiered on HBO Max, that's a streaming service. And right. so like you really are <laughs> splitting hairs there at this point. Yep. <laughs> it 
It really is, it, it, which is, you know, uh, we're going to get to the point that we're not separating awards by gender, by genre, mm. by uh, by medium. Uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to just end up with, like, the awards, and it's going to be for everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but we're a long ways away from that. And if you are interested in seeing how these directors and uh, uh, projects and actors are all going to fare, you can check out the 30th Annual Gotham Independent Film Awards, which will be presented on January 11th, 2021. We are now... Now going to shift gears a little bit to a fantastic character actor, John Tutura, who I know is a favorite among the AV Club staff. Yeah. Shout out to John Tutura and Gloria Bell. <laughs> <laughs> I love Gloria Bell so much. And we got to discuss a lot of, of John's work uh, as part of our Random Roles franchise. This is actually the second time we've done the franchise with John, but he has done so much work since 2012 that there was plenty to discuss with him. And he was kind enough to give up a, a bit of his evening while filming The Batman to, to speak with me. So let's take a little bit of a listen to that. Thanks so much for being able to join us, John. I know you're in, in London and you mentioned doing night shoots. So I, I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and being here. My pleasure. So we're going to be walking through, you know, the, the years of your career. Uh, but I want to start off with your most recent project uh, and talk about the true adventures of Wolf Boy. You, of course, play Mr. Silk in that. Tell us a little bit about how that project came into your life and why it was something that you wanted to be a part of. I just really liked the script. I thought it was about, you know, uh, identity, you know, someone being a real outcast. And, you know, it, it explored a lot of different kinds of sexuality and transitioning and things that, you know, are in the public discourse. But I thought it was told from a very, you know, personal point of view. And I thought there was something special about the script. Of course, it's always a challenge to bring a script to uh, fruition. But I like the subject matter of it. And even though I, I'm playing sort of the antagonist of it, uh, someone who takes advantage of someone's difference and basically, you know, uh, exploits them, which was done a lot years ago in the circus, you know, uh, or in freak shows and things like that. So I thought there was something really uh, sort of poignant and, and like kind of beautiful about the story. So you know, if you could be involved in things that support uh, different subject matters, I think sometimes something just speaks to you. And I, I, I thought it was really a terrific script. And were you super knowledgeable about that kind of practice from the past? Or was that stuff that came up in research for the project? What kind of practice? You mean about exploiting uh, people who are different or who have handicaps and things like that? Yes. I mean, of course, of course, at that broad, I feel like we still do that to a certain degree, but we um, do, but, but, not, uh, but not as much, not as much. I mean, yeah. I think mentally ill people really are still, you know, people look away still from, from mentally ill people, but I think handicapped people or, and other kinds of people, you know, people have been fighting to have their voices heard. There's been advocacy on many different groups behalf. So I, I think it's always good to be involved in something that's, uh, that comes out of someone that they're not writing about the subject, but it comes out from their own experience and uh, the writer's experience is in uh, the script. And talk to me about the response that the film has had, because people really have enjoyed it. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not so aware of that, but I guess, you know, uh, that's really nice because, you know, you put a lot of work into these things. So that's always rewarding because you never know. You know, sometimes I've been involved in projects that have great scripts and they don't pull it off. So it's, a, it's a, you never know what it's going to be. And every film is made within its own limitations. Each film has to be judged on its own. But, you know, films like this, are there is a limitation to what you can do. So you have to be creative within that. You're obviously working on a, a big budget film right now. Do right. you prefer, like, like obviously the, the perks can be different uh, on a big budget film, but do you enjoy one over the other or do you feel any difference in preparing for one of those kind of pieces uh, compared to something uh, that's like a big budget piece? Well, I mean, I could have early on in my career done a lot of big budget movies and I, I basically never did for years because there was medium-sized films. So I would do like medium-sized films, low-budget films. I would do theater. 
and I go back and forth. And I did, you know, my my own movies, which are independent movies. But the medium-sized film has disappeared. I hadn't really done a big movie until I did Transformers. And my kids both said, Dad, you know, you always turn everything. I, I got offered a lot of big movies and I never did them. And, uh, and then I, you know, I kind of enjoyed doing the Transformers. It's, it's more like a, you're working in two dimensions more. You know, it, it, it's not really three-dimensional. It's like a, you know, a fine oil painting versus a really good uh, sketch. You know, uh, but within that, there's a lot of challenges, you know, to make it fun and whatever. So, uh, no, you know, I think each thing, it's its own and you have to kind of bring with it the child within you uh, and my own sensibility. You know, I like things that have everything in it, you know, that have humor and darkness and, you know, like life has, you know, it's it's life is like a black comic tragedy. You know, so you know, I've done Beckett and Chekhov, so I kind of know, you know, what what I really like. You know, that's where I really. But you know, you have to make a living and do different things, and you can enjoy. You know, each thing is a challenge. What I'm doing now is is different, but it's a challenge. So you try to fill it out for the the sensibility that it requires. Well, speaking of those medium-sized films, uh, let's take a look back at some of your earlier work. And when we spoke to you for our Random Rolls interview in 2011, they spoke to you about your very first credit on IMDb, which was an uncredited one-line part in Raging Bull. But I want to talk about the second credit that's listed there, which is guy number one in 1984's Exterminator 2, which is about... I was never... That's not my criticism. I never did that movie. Oh, for some reason... You've got to yell at IMDb. No, no, it's it's wrong. I auditioned for it, and I think they wanted me for it, but I didn't do it. I wound up doing something else. Yeah, no, I never did it. That's that's a false credit. Well, we got to yell at IMDb then. Um... But you mentioned yeah. I was I was rereading our our interview with you, and you mentioned like Raging Bull. You did multiple auditions for. Talk to me a little bit about that stage in your career where I was in college when that yeah. happened. I was in I was doing a showcase with my friend Michael Bottoluco and Robert De Niro, who was our hero, one of our heroes, uh, came to the showcase. We were doing Tooth of Crime, and saw us, and he, then we were they were looking for all different young actors. Because he was going to play younger, he's like fourteen years older than than I am, and uh, I got my first professional audition. And I, I didn't have a resume, a uh, picture or anything. And we we took pictures in my girlfriend's garage, Michael and I, and uh, we went to meet him. But and we decided there was just a meeting to talk, and uh, we decided to prepare a scene from the book which I had read as a kid because my father was a big boxing aficionado my father was an amateur boxer i collected eight millimeter fight films from jim jacobs who was mike tyson's manager i used to send away from ring magazine so i knew a lot about boxing so we adapted a scene uh, between jake and his best friend which was like his brother in the movie but from the book and we told him we had a scene prepared we we, we rehearsed it running swimming boxing we, we rehearsed it all different ways and then they we met Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro and they, they were like, we don't have a, our script isn't done. And Bob was really uh, supportive of us doing the scene. And we did the scene. It was like an on the waterfront kind of scene. And uh, we had to move the table. And uh, I think they were really, maybe they appreciated our wits, but you know, that we, we had this thing prepared. And so they kept calling us back, both of us for about a year. So both of us got like, you know, a line. So yeah, so it was, and I've been friends with both of them for a long time, including Michael Bartolucco is one of my best friends, but uh, I, I have a very long relationship with Bob and, uh, and, and Marty too. Um, yeah, I'm sure they have appreciated the initiative that you all took. Uh, that's incredible. Yeah, that's what happens when you're naive and innocent. And I think a lot of great things come out of innocence, you know, with the right intentions. Well, let's jump forward a decade and discuss 1995's Clockers. Uh, that was, a, you know, unfortunately, a lot of what we did in Clockers, because the book is so long. Now, it would have been a six-hour miniseries. A lot of what I did, which was great from the book, was cut. You know, and Spike felt really bad about that. But 
you know, I, once again, I love the book. I've worked with Richard Price on the night of, on the color of money. And I'm good friends with Richard. And uh, it, it was really fascinating to do. And the most fascinating part of the whole movie was that I rode with the homicide squad and I still have friends from the time I met there and all the actors would go one at a time, but I was the lucky actor. Whenever I went, there was a killing, you know, they would put things up my noses, uh, like, you know, for the smell, wrap my feet in, uh, in plastic and my hands because there were crime scenes and dead bodies. And they were really black comics, the, uh, the detectives, because they have to survive, you know. Uh, but I, it made such an impression on me. And I've drawn on my research from that film, from other things that I've done. But it was, it was amazing. Actually, last one, the last murder I was at, they asked me to take some fingerprints off the wall. They said, it's about time that you do something, not just watch, you know. <laughs> I was... I just didn't want to pass out, you know, but, uh, you know, they have a really hard job. It's a really hard job. So sometimes making films, and I mean, Spike is a dear, dear friend of mine. I just did an interview with him last night for the DGA for like 90 minutes and uh, I enjoy working with him. I, one of the things I find fascinating about the life of an actor is that for so many projects, you do have to do stuff like go out there with those detectives yeah, and officers. That's the fun part. Yeah. What do you feel like has been, uh, obviously this one has stuck with you, but uh, have there been other opportunities that you've had? Oh, like yeah. That? Yeah. I've learned how to you know play pool pretty well. I've learned how to ride a horse really, really well and do all my own stunts. The problem is that, that you don't always continue. Like I've continued to ride a little bit, but I was in love with it after being so afraid of it. And sometimes you get good at something and then you don't have the opportunity to continue that. You know, and that kind of sometimes saddens me that I, you know, that I didn't become, you know, keep it up, you know, or whatever. And, uh, so, but there's a few things that, that I have, like the, the riding a horse is one of them. But, you know, you learn how to do different things, shoot a gun, ride a horse, play pool, whatever, whatever is, you know, required of it. And obviously, if you like to learn, it's that's to me the most fun part of something and saying how can i get comfortable and i can look natural doing this you know whether it's bowling or you know or dancing you know and something and dance i've danced a lot i, I did train in dance and i've danced in a lot of movies so but learning things is 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 part of the you know you're like a perpetual student and uh Sometimes you just want to become a master at something and, and you, you have to really admit to yourself that you're not. <laughs> that you're really not. Like I had to play an opera singer once in the movie called The Man Who Cried with Kate Blanchett and Johnny Depp and Christina Ricci. And I learned all the arias. Of course, I couldn't sing as high as the tenors did. And, you know, and I would sing along full out. And of course, you know, in your mind, your fantasy is that you could hit those notes. And, uh, you know, and, and I, I sang at the Paris the Opera and some of the real opera singers were watching me with their mouths wide open because I didn't care if the note was wrong. You know, I was trying to sell it, but, but still I, I was able to, you know, hold the tune and, and sing it. And, and, uh, that was a thrill because I've grown up a lot with, I love music and, uh, but anytime you get to, you know, it's fun. It's fun. Hard work, but fun. One of the things that you've been asked to pull out of your, your box of tricks time and time again has been your voiceover work. And, you know, obviously you did Monkey Bone Cars 2. You actually narrated a biography series, I noticed, in 2001, a couple episodes of a, of a documentary for biography, apparently. But one that I wanted to talk about was Summer of Sam. That you're oh well, Summer of Sam. Spike talked me into doing because I was he wanted me to be in it, and I wanted to take a vacation, and so someone else did the part he wanted me to do. So of course, I think maybe he felt like I was his good luck charm or something. So he made me play the dog, the voice of the dog that drives Sam crazy. And my friend Michael Badaluco, who we mentioned before, who was in Jungle Fever, also he plays uh, David Berkowitz in the movie. And I'm the dog. And I couldn't believe that he asked me to. I was dying laughing. And uh, 
But yeah, so that that was, you know, we tried different kinds of attacks on that. The monkey bone was very hard because they wanted me to pitch my voice so high. I kept thinking, well, why don't you just get somebody else? But the guy really, we worked really, really hard. And he worked so hard on that movie, Henry, and, and, you know, didn't meet, I guess, the expectations that he wanted it to. But uh, it's it's hard. You know, some people, there's a real skill to doing a voice or a voiceover. You know, some people do tons of voiceovers, you know, and. And had you studied that or was it just... I studied voice. No, I studied voice at Yale and uh, studied singing afterwards. But I studied, you know, voice there. I studied a little bit at undergrad school at SUNY New Paltz. But I've done lots of different accents. You know, sometimes, you know, when I did Quiz Show, for example, the character had a very high voice, Herb Stemple. You know, we talked very, very high you know, I, I can't really do it right now, but uh, because I have to, have to warm my my voice up, you know, Mister uh, Mister uh, Lipnick. Uh, you know. But uh, I had to work really hard because I wanted to match his voice, and I did. And I would warm up before every take, and everyone knew it was me because I'd always do this. Me, I, I, you know, I, I did all these. Uh, you get your voice up and in your mask. Right now, my voice is a little husky because I, I've been working nights and. Uh, so, you know, it's, then you have to sustain it. That's the hard thing. And uh, even when I did the Jesus, too, my voice was high. It was based on somebody that I knew. But, you know, that's, or you just sound exactly like you always sound. And some actors do, and they're terrific actors. But I, you know, I, maybe I do it a little differently. So uh, I follow a tradition of certain actors. Let's talk about 2000's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? We actually just celebrated Y2K Week at the AV Club in which we look back at the pop culture of 2000 and spoke about how that film has had such an impact on on tone and the Coen brothers in general, which obviously you've worked with multiple times, but that soundtrack specifically as well has really just had such a staying power. Well, I, I mean, when I listened to the music, I thought it was terrific, but I never thought it was going to take off like that, you know, and uh, it was a blast making the movie. They're very organized. They always have enough time to do what they've imagined. And it was a great cast. And uh, I mean, they, I remember I had to learn how to play the mandolin. And then at the end, they told me, and I learned the songs on this little mandolin. And then they said, well, you, when you're not going to play it. You're going to yodel. And I was like, I don't, I don't know how to yodel. And so I had to kind of, you know, fake it. You know what I mean? But I didn't do some of the choreography because I'm a, you know, a closet dancer. Uh, but I think when that film came out, it didn't, I mean, it did okay. The reviews were like, this is a shaggy dog tale. It wasn't, they weren't getting the the wonderment of it all. And then the album took off and that they asked them to put a little money into certain states where the album was doing well. And that kind of brought the film back. But I always thought it was a family movie. And I think that if they would have presented it that way, you know, little kids like that movie. They do. They don't get everything, but they like it, you know? And uh, it's a movie, it's a family movie. But it's really, when I watch it now, I, I know many of their films are better on second, third, fourth, fifth, you know, and viewings. It's a really funny movie. They're great. I mean, you know, some directors really love music and the, the soundtrack just was great. And the only one who's really on the soundtrack is Tim. That's a fun movie. And I, I saw it recently. There was a 20th screening and I laughed so much, I, more than I maybe did initially. No, it, it certainly, it holds up so well. Uh, I, we rewatched it recently as well. And yeah. it, it, it just, it really, it could, it could be, have done, been done today, basically, which is, yeah, you know, a right. testament to a great film. Let's talk about a little cameo you did in a credit scene of Flight of the Concords in 2007. You really, you're really into obscure trivia. Uh, yeah, like once again, I just showed up. They, I, I thought it was a funny show and they asked me to do a little something. I said, okay, I'll do it. So uh, those guys were, were fun. I don't really remember that much about it because when you just do one day, you're like, you're just trying to make sure you get your lines and it's not a full guest spot. You're just kind of doing a little and out. So, uh, well, you but, mentioned uh, being a, you mentioned being a fan of that show. Uh, that's, one of the things that's great, particularly about your career with people that you've worked with multiple times and opportunities you've had, 
I, I love that it's something that's like, oh, I just liked it. So like it just came to be. Um, that's that's a real yeah, I mean, I mean, some people have a plan, you know, and I mean, I have a pl- I have a plan, like things that I really want to do and I try to do, whether it's in the theater or my own film or or a film that I get behind. And everyone does that to a certain extent if you're industrious. But sometimes I'm, I am a fan of, some, you know, some people I, I'm like a big fan of Larry David. I love Larry David. I love him. I mean, I just, he makes me laugh. And especially in times like now, you know, uh, you need that, you know, and, uh, and he's really truthful and stuff like that. So I've, I was a big fan of Seinfeld too, you know, but I really appreciate that. And so if Larry David said, Hey, John, I want you to come on and, you know, do something crazy for me. I don't want to, I don't want to say what, what that would be. I would do it. I would, I would say whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll do it. That's it. I could actually see you doing a very good Larry David, um, which can be interesting. <laughs> well, Larry is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I like grew up around him or I know him from my past, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of people. I'm a huge Burn Lancaster fan. So uh, when people talk about Burn Lancaster, they always come to me, you know, and, uh, you know, I can't, like when I watch uh, like Sweet Smell of Success or something, you know, it's like, I, I can't get enough of it. Well, you mentioned not planning uh, and that kind of being uh, a part of your process. It's part of your plan. Part of your plan is to allow for unplanned things. Um, Well, it's part of it. You you have to. Yeah. Uh, One thing I noticed looking back through your resume um, that I actually, I've seen all of these projects, but had not thought of them as a trio. Uh, You kind of went through your God's phase in 2013 and 2014 with God's Behaving Badly, followed by God's Pocket, followed by Exodus, God's of Kings. I also then did a couple of years later the, the miniseries of The Name of the Rose. Yes. Which was my favorite thing to do of all of those. And then, of course, there's your Jesus connection. So, well, I'm a religious, I, I have obviously have a career of doing religious uh, characters. So, uh, <laughs> I actually haven't really done that many gods were in the title, but I love. Of religious stories, I have to say, the name of the rose is great because it's like Sherlock Holmes and a, and I got to play William of Baskerville and that was a great role and I really enjoyed that. So yeah, things are going to connect. Yes, the the, the Jesus that has to do with the whole Lebowski the religion of Lebowski. So that's another thing that emerged after it was released, and it just goes to show you, you know. You know, you have these movies that win Best Picture, they win this, they win all these, and then no one ever, re- it, it never goes into the unconscious. It never goes into the zeitgeist. And the Lebowski is, you know, people carry that with them when they go to, when they serve and they go to war, you know, so you never know. Well, we discussed The Big Lebowski with you in our previous interview, but since then you've got to uh, write and direct the Jesus roles. Which right, is which is out. You can see it on all these different platforms now. If you want to, I think it's on Showtime now, also. Yeah, yeah. So talk talk to me about putting that together and kind of taking taking your Lebowski experience. Well, that character was originated in a play that they saw, and then they incorporated it into the Big Lebowski. I would, it's a little different version of it, but it's like a very close cousin to what I had done. So then everyone, because I had a small part wanted me to do something with that character. And because I had done it on stage, I knew there was way more, you know, depth to it and dimension to it. And so I always wanted to, but Joel and Ethan didn't want to write it. And we had this crazy idea once about him being a bus driver, getting out of jail. <laughs> and uh, that didn't come to fruition. And then I adapted this uh, French book called uh, Les Valzes, which has been retranslated into Going Places. And it was a crazy movie when I saw, when I saw when I was like, 19 but it like shocked me it was really shocking the original film it still is really shocking but i like something about it because it was about overachievers you know uh, no no not overachievers underachievers you know i was gonna say yeah men like in the big lebowski uh who you know live without ambition they live you know moment to moment you know they want to be a roadie they want to be a bowler you know they just they're in the moment. They're living. They enjoy life, and uh, so it was really hard to do it to get the rights. Joel and Ethan helped me and stuff like that. 
but I, you know, I did it and I'm really happy I did it. And people are discovering it now. And I think especially during the pandemic and they're really enjoying it. You know, lots of people have been writing me saying, oh, I made me laugh so much and stuff. So I'm glad I got a chance to do it. No, most certainly. I feel like I feel like it is one of those projects that has gotten that life on streaming uh, in a way yeah. that's exciting. Uh, another streaming project, uh, The Ridiculous Six reunited you with Adam Sandler, which that I, yeah, that that was another one day thing, you know? which is great because I, it's such a long. I mean, you know that that you you have such a moment in that film for it to be like a one day thing. I, you know, you know, Adam, you know, he he likes. You know, sometimes I can't do it, but he he really asked me to do it. I, I I must have said no like twenty times. I can't do it. I can't. And then finally, we found the window that I could come in and I did it. And I guess people, you know, enjoy it. It's about the beginning of baseball. Yeah, you get to invent baseball uh, and and point out all the ridiculousness of some of those rules. What is it about working with Adam? Like, what do you feel it is about your your relationship on screen together that made people that want to work together? I knew Adam. I met him when I did, I hosted Saturday Night Live in 1994. And, you know, I I thought he was good in those movies. I I think he's done some great work. The last thing he did on Cut Gems, he was terrific. And and when he asked me to do Mr. Deeds, they, I think originally they asked me to do like a big part, but I, but I like these two small parts. And I said, could you put them maybe together? And he had this similar idea. And they basically let me do exactly what I wanted, whatever I wanted to do. And, uh, and I did, I designed like the costume and everything. And, uh, and I had a really good experience that first time doing Mr. Deeds. That's a really like a fun comedic you know, playing a butler is always a good part or a maid or butler. It's always best part, you know. So I think that kind of cemented that we had a really good time and they let me do. But then he asked me to do uh, anger management and because he had told Jack Nicholson I was going to be in it. And he, he sort of blackmailed me. I was like, you told him. I'm, I, said, I, didn't, I don't know if I could do it. And anyway, I did that. And then I had a lot of fun doing the Zohan. That I knew he was obsessed with and he he'd always talk about it. Matter of fact, we leave messages for each other. The the Phantom against the Zohan, you know. I, I tell them that you could never beat me. You know, but uh, you know, I, Adam is like a, he like to play basketball. You know, he's a good guy, and he, I think he's very talented. And, uh, and I've always had fun with him. You had mentioned how previous projects you've done could be turned into miniseries. Well, one miniseries you did is 2016's HBO crime drama, The Night of. Uh, That's one of the, my favorite things that I've ever done. What made it a favorite? I thought the material was fantastic. You know, they they want to continue that character another time, but they just haven't figured out the story they wanted to do. But working with Steve Zalian and, and Richard Price was the material was fantastic. It was a great cast. You know, it was it was just great great people. And I, I, I had a lot of time to prepare. I did a lot of research. My my research from Clockers helped me. Had a lot of connections, uh, and I love doing it. I mean, people were obsessed, you know, with the series, you know, and I think it, sometimes you just hit something, you know, just, it spoke to me and uh, I really got lost and I would really love to revisit that character. I really would. You know, Riz and I had a terrific chemistry together, but the whole cast was a terrific, really excellent group of people. Well, you're certainly not alone in wanting uh, more of that character around. So I hope that that happens. Uh, what What is appealing? Because, you know, I obviously want to talk about the plot to save America as well. With the rise of the of the limited series, you know, as, as they've renamed them, what what is appealing about that and being able to tell a story over those number of episodes, but also not committing to, say, a full season of 20 episodes of something? Right. Well, I think, you know, there are more stories that work perfectly for two hours, three hours. There's a lot of books that have been adapted that have been truncated and they're just, it's, it's kind of like a, a massacre of the book in, in two hours. So some stories are more episodic and a lot of, it's much more, it's closer to novelization. You know, it's, it's closer to reading a novel. You pick it up, you put it down, you pick it up. Charles Dickens used to write in installments. You know, in the newspapers, people would read maybe a chapter or not. And the New Yorker, when it was really thick, did this, the same thing. And then and it turned out to be turned into a book. So it's a form that the BBC has done for years. And I think people have picked up on it and they love, if, they, if you love the characters and it's, there's a specificity and a complexity to things, 
it can really sustain. It may sustain for four, for five, for six. You know, the BBC has done all different kinds that way. And I think people, obviously, you know, uh, places like HBO, they want to have more content. So it's good for them. But there are some stories that you can't tell in two hours. And now with the case of streaming and people being like we are right now, you know, people are embracing that even more. But I think people, they get obsessed with it. I mean, I saw it on the on the, the night of, you know, people would write to me, what's going to happen, you know, with the cat. They were so concerned about the cat. And I was like, not, they're not even concerned about Riz. They're concerned about the cat. But I was like, I can't tell you. You know what I mean? I, you know, I, my lips are sealed. Uh, uh, so I just think it's it's like a novel, you know, if you like reading novels. And it's a great form for something. Sometimes the story is stretched to make it work, and it doesn't work. And then sometimes you see everything is going perfectly, and then it has to rush because they only had so many of it, you know. The Night Of is a great a case of not rushing. I mean, our last episode was like an hour and 40 minutes. So it wasn't, it wasn't actually eight hours. It was more like 10 plus hours or something, you know. But it had, that had the, the richness, the, the canvas of it, you know. Plot Against America, you know, is a rich story too. Maybe it could even have been longer. You know, I, I don't know. You know, you could have possibly. But you get a certain amount of money to do it within that. But I did think there was plenty to tell within that. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a show, it, it's maybe not a, an environment and world that I want to spend more time in if I think about it too hard, but the story, right. I want I want more of that. So, right. so yeah. I'm right there with you. It's been such a pleasure to look back at all of these. I want to close out by looking at the present for a moment uh, and for, for future of Random Rolls. I know you can't obviously talk about plot or anything like that with filming the Batman where, where you're at in right. London, but can you tell us a little bit about what the experience has been like? Well, it's been, it's been a little surreal just because everyone has masks on, on the set and we're making a film with people who wear masks and stuff. Uh, but it's got a great cast, which everyone knows. And the director's terrific, uh, Matt Reeves. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I, I'm enjoying it. I never thought I'd be in a Batman film. I, I was a big Zorro fan. I was a big Batman fan for the comic and the, and the television series. My son, uh, both love Batman. My older boy, uh, son, he works at DC Comics. So, you know, I, I've played with these figures with them by myself. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, bizarre, you know, saying like, wow, you know, this is like playing, you know, make-believe, you know, as a kid with my kids and uh so it's fun it's fun and it's 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 they're working very hard but all i can say it's got a beautiful look and everything and i'm enjoying it and then after that i'm going to do a a thing with ben stiller like 10 uh eight parts which could continue uh called severance which is a really well written uh piece and i'm really looking forward to it well, we continue to watch you play and tap into that childlike wonder uh, as you've done time and time again. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thanks for all your intelligent uh, questions and all the trivia that I had forgotten. It was really great to get to dive so deep into the craft with him. Uh, you know, he's somebody that really respects the work that an actor has to do for a piece. And, and you can tell that in the way that he describes what he did to prepare for each of these roles. You can check out the entire interview on avclub.com. And if you want to see John Turturro in his latest film, The True Adventures of Wolf Boy, you can rent it on Amazon, Apple TV, DirecTV, and any other on-demand streamers where you normally get that kind of stuff. Uh, but Katie, uh, endowed, I thank you guys so much for, for joining me for this episode. Sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this installment of Push the Envelope. Please remember to rate and comment and subscribe. And we will be back next week with a bit of a different episode for the Thanksgiving holiday with interviews with Gotham Award nominee Riz Ahmed, uh, as well as John Boyega. And then we'll return to programming as usual the following week. But until then, bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.